0: Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Investing from A to Z podcast. I'm your host, Steph Bodrini. This podcast is for everyone who wants to learn about investing in commercial properties. We get the best people in the industry to give you straightforward and practical advice that you can actually use in your investing. And in this episode, we are talking about net leases and single tenant retail spaces and how you can add value to these investments, how they have performed over the last year. We are talking with Randy Blankstein. He is the president of the net lease advisory firm, The Boulder Group. He has over 30 years of experience in the single tenant net lease sector. He led The Boulder Group to a top 10 company national ranking for single tenant retail transactions, and he is also the chair of the Net Lease Summit Conference. Here we go. Randy, thank you so much for joining us today, and thank you for saying yes to my completely out-of-the-blue call. I really appreciate it. But first, why don't you tell us a little bit about you?
1: Thanks for having me, Stephanie. I appreciate it. I'm a listener of the show for about two months now, so happy to be on. (laughs) You know, quickly, um, got into the business a long time ago, which is 1991 to age myself. Went to work for a, a Chicago real estate firm, commercial real estate company, which has been since acquired, which is now JLL. And I ran the industrial portfolio for the Midwest for at And as part of running that, you know, I was responsible for, for the garages where the service vehicles go at the end of the night. So they're all kind of freestanding facilities. And so I kind of got introduced to this net lease world, which is, you know, single tenant, uh, usually investment grade, long-term leases, and you know, kind of realized it was a marketplace. You know, since I'd handle these on a regular basis every day you know, realized there was a lot of activity, a lot of demand for it. It wasn't really an official sector at that point. There wasn't conferences and REITs and everything else. Net lease, they were just single tenant properties. But realized there was a niche, wasn't a lot of people filling that niche. So decided to start my own, you know, boutique investment, real estate brokerage company focused on only on single tenant Netlease properties. And, you know, that's so where we are today. Since 1997, been solely focused on this niche of triple net properties.
0: And I know it's a, it's been a great asset class to own during COVID as well. Let's set the tone just in case some people don't know the difference between net, double net and triple net leases. What is the difference between them?
1: Single net properties, which we typically don't see in our little sector, but that it certainly exists in the marketplace. You know, usually the tenant pays rent and the property taxes and that's it. So again, it's not the majority of the sector, but you know, for, for single net, it, it's rent and property taxes. That's it. For double net, which is the majority of the sector, um, double net and triple net kind of are equal. Um, You know, double net, the tenant pays taxes, insurance, and some type of maintenance. So, for example, you know, we have some freestanding properties. Let's use Walgreens as an example, who used to be a double net, but now is a triple net (laughs) lease. They converted, you know, a while back. But, you know, when they're double net properties, the tenant, you know, again, is paying the taxes, the insurance, and some maintenance. So, You know, Walgreens carved out, you know, roof structure and parking lot as landlord responsibilities, which is pretty common for double net leases. And, you know, sometimes there's uh, maintenance obligation on the tenant and then replacement is landlord obligation. And sometimes it, it kind of varies throughout the thing. Sometimes landlord has, you know, all those responsibilities, but on double net leases, there's some type of shared responsibility or landlord responsibility for, you know, those issues. For true triple net leases, you know, the tenant's paying for everything. So, on triple net leases, the tenant pays for maintenance, repairs, taxes, insurance. Everything is paid by the tenant. So there's very little to do. And you know, you just pretty much own a property that just gives you a return without having to do any kind of management of the property. It's completely passive. So obviously they're very popular. And you know, triple net leases are the most in demand because of the lack of day-to-day management of them. And because of their so little to do, you know, 68% of people that own triple net properties own them outside of the state of which they're located in. So again, it's more of a national business than a regional business or a local business because of that aspect.
0: I'm super curious to hear if anything changed in the single tenant retail space over the last year. Can you give us an overview, please?
1: Yeah. I mean, look, the, the, the net lease part of the market is the most conservative and stable and people buy these things. It's more of a defensive play, not offense. It's like buying bonds versus stocks. Mm -hmm. You want want cash flow, you want certainty, you want long-term lease. A lot of people want investment grade tenants, so you just really want to collect a check, and the certainty of that is is the beauty. So, you know, besides for transaction volume going off the cliff in Q2 of last year because of COVID, you know, it started to build as the year went on. And again, since this isn't isn't the most exciting part of the market, you know, not a lot changed on a day-to-day basis because. You know, most of the, the huge majority of tenants continued to pay the rent. There wasn't many changes along the way, and you know they performed as they as they're supposed to, which is you know well in a down market, and you don't share the upside on a good market. So, you know, they performed well during COVID and they performed well during the financial crisis of 07 eight. Again, these are the the sturdy, defensive, you know, defensive part of the real estate portfolio. So, they perform well. As far as buyers, you know, buyers went to obviously things that were open, things that were essential. Names like Walgreens, Home Depot, Walmart, 7-Eleven, CVS, McDonald's—you know, things that were open, doing well during COVID, strong investment grade—they went long-term leases. It was a flight to safety, and those are the kind of names that people move towards. Um, additionally, as people looked at remote work and, and migration trends, you know, people were focused on markets that were open and performing well. So, you know, there's much greater focus on on Texas and Florida, for instance for geographic focus because there was a lot of remote workers who kind of accelerated trends of of growth in those two states.
0: Let's jump into what are some value-add techniques in the single tenant space from an investor's perspective. What can people do if they see, uh, let's say, a dark Walgreens for sale or any other technique that may come to mind?
1: Sure. So while the majority of the sector by far is not value add, it's again, you know, kind of core coupon clipping conservative. There are some areas where you can add value in that lease. You know, besides for dark properties, like you mentioned, which are properties which have a few years left on the lease that the tenant still pays rent for, but they're not occupying anymore. You know, you saw a lot of like Walgreens and and, CV- and CVS and Rite Aid kind of a few of those went dark because of some acquisitions, and sometimes they had overlapping facilities, so they closed one. Um, you also saw some of that with the SunTrust merger. You know, you had excess facilities, but you're still getting rent on them, so you can kind of reposition, collect your existing rent, and, and try to upgrade a tenant. That's certainly one value-add technique. You know, otherwise, people, you buy short-term deals where they feel confidence towards a renewal, so they can, you know, buy a one- to four-year lease and try to get it extended or try to get, you know, a lease renewal. It certainly is a way to, you know, you've added lease term, you've potentially added value with the rent increasing so that's another value add and also people look for either improving metros that aren't being recognized or improving credits so you know people mm. look at things like caliber collision which is you know non-investment grade but people think on the way up in a growing sector people look at you know 25 to 50 unit franchisees and think like mm, there's consolidation in the franchisee sector maybe they're right for growth and i could be buying a 25 unit franchisee but They could be acquired in a few years and it could be selling a 300 unit franchisee.
0: So I think Mm -hmm. credit
1: upgrades is certainly a way you can make more You can add value, you know, again, and people are looking at some markets that are growing, but not already valued very highly. So, I mean, everyone recognizes growth markets like, you know, Raleigh, Nashville, and Austin and Frisco, but there's other secondary markets which are growing, which get less attention, you know, Greenville, South Carolina, Knoxville, Chattanooga, you know, those are some of the kind of secondary names that, growth could continue over the years and and people could be paying a premium for them. You know, also people, some people are speculating, you know, much on, on a much higher yield basis and buying cannabis lease facilities, which traded very high because they're not legal nationally. And so, you know, there's trouble financing them and other things, but people are buying them on the bet that, you know, eventually they do get legalized on a national basis. And that would, you know, there could be three or four basis of compression if that actually happened. So, you know, those are some value add strategies within the space.
0: Oh, that is a really, really good point. My purple crystal ball tells me that it is going to get legalized for sure. So I think that's a very, very, very good idea to start looking at these kind of properties if you are in line <laughs> with that kind of investment morally.
1: <laughs> you understand. If you believe in the concept and you're you you're okay with it morally, yes. Being legalized would be a huge cap rate compression for where they trade now, which is a discount due to, you know, regulatory uncertainty.
0: Exactly. I know that there are 300 million things that people can negotiate on leases, but what are some super important things that you think landlords should definitely negotiate in these kind of leases?
1: There's obviously, you know, tens of things you can talk to on lease negotiations, but really you need to focus on two things, um, because ultimately... A lease is only as good as, as as the credit and financials behind the tenant, and and or the individual success at this location. Even if it's a you know a large public company, you still need to know that this location is okay, so that you have a strong renewal probability. That's what you're trying to figure out here. So, what you really need is store sales reporting for this individual location. You know, you really want to know that the rent to sales is in line with the tenant average, with the market average, and that you know this is a strong performing location that will has a high renewal probability, because that's the biggest risk event in a net lease property is, will they renew at the end of the lease term? So no in-store sales takes a lot of the the risk out of it. And again, a lot of lenders want them and a lot of buyers want them. So really important to get the store sales. Also for private tenants, franchisees, other people that aren't public, (laughs) you really need the tenant's corporate financials because again, even though this location may be doing well or average or what have you, it's still backed by whatever parent is ultimately the guarantee on the lease. And so you need to understand the strength of that guarantor, you know, a 25 unit franchisee, some kind have great balance sheets, some, you know, not so good. <laughs> so you really need to know where the corporate stands. But again, if I had a choice between the two, I would want my individual store sales first because even a bad franchisee, if this is the best location, they'll close other locations first and yours will still be standing even if the corporation isn't doing well. So those are the two you should focus on.
0: So if you get that particular store sales, can you also request, the neighboring store sales as well, to compare?
1: You can't get neighboring store sales, but what you can get is, you know, the unit average for whoever the operator is. And again, most of these things have, you know, known rent-to-sales. So, you know, quick service restaurants, you really want to be under uh, 8% rent-to-sales. And so you really need to understand, you know, based on your current rent, where the how profitable the tenant is at this location. Number one thing for rent renewals, if there's ever relief or if you enter into a situation like COVID where they come back to you and say, you know, hey, our store's closed for six months because of COVID, you know, you can say people, they've, a lot of tenants came back to people and said, look, I need some rent relief. And they said, okay, but I need you to give me a six month, ex- I'll give you six month of, of free rent or half rent. And, you know, in exchange, I want six months of extension at the end of the lease term. And I want you to start reporting store sales on an annual basis. Mm-hmm. So. It's, it's a good swabbing mechanism even for leases that you don't have when there's le- tenants looking for concessions.
0: Mm-hmm. Can you share some horror stories with us, maybe a top two or three horror stories that you've seen in these kind of negotiations?
1: I luckily don't have a lot of horror stories. because <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> again, lucky for some extent because the majority of our clients are fairly sophisticated and I've never kind of encouraged people to go up there on the risk curve to buy, you know, one to 10 unit franchisees are always very risky. You know, they don't have an operations in place. They don't have a CFO. They just don't have some of the things that larger franchisees have that you really need. So maybe like 10 or 15 years ago, you know, these things used to trade at 150 basis point discount to some of the better locations. But today it's it's like 25 to 50 because it's kind of a compressed cap rate environment. So I say, look, during a compressed cap rate environment, you know, you need to go for larger franchisees, major metros, newer locations, Mm -hmm. and and kind of, you know, pay a little bit extra for the higher quality, because you're not getting the discount (laughs) between the highest and lowest quality is too tight historically today.
0: So, you know, I am a lagger in terms of these online purchasing, but I finally just made my first grocery purchase online. And, uh, It was amazing. I loved getting my thing in my door and not having to carry anything anywhere. And I know this is going to be a slow trend, you know, to convert, potentially convert some retail to something else. But where do you see that may go in the future?
1: Well, look, clearly online has taken market share for the last 20 years and probably isn't done at this point. Um, But again, it's not a new concept at this point. So a lot of it's already baked into the cake. And some of it was just accelerated through COVID where, you know, online obviously had its heyday and more, more people converted to it quicker. But, you know, at the end of the day, it will, you know, take out a lot of second and third tier players and shift some floor plans to smaller as online takes, you know, a certain share of the marketplace. So, I mean, look, Omnichannel, which is, you know, kind of a mix of... Uh, of online and brick and mortar is, is clearly the way of the future. And look, there may be less stores and there may be less square footage in the future, and that's probably probable. Um, mm-hmm. But also what the pandemic has proved is that, you know, there's a sector that likes to go shopping. There's a sector that likes to see people together. They like the experience. And, you know, the the the, the downside or dark side of online is returns are really hassle and expensive and cause you to go to a UBS store. Now you're back into a store and back online um, for your returns. So there's not necessarily time and cost savings in regard to that. So again, online is going to keep gaining market share. But again, I think people will go online sometimes, go to the store sometimes, and more importantly, you know, maybe you just go to the store for something on your way home to grab one or two or three items, but not a full grocery shopping. So again, I think it's a mix and match. And I think the The retailers who are best positioned for this kind of new market are, you know, the freestanding ones and people who've adjusted their footprints. I mean, I think you're going to see a lot of, for net least, what's good is a lot of these people are getting out of enclosed malls and going to freestanding locations, you know, whether it's Lululemon or Apple Store or Sephora or the Cap, because people just want to, at this point, a lot of them go to the store quickly on the way home or quickly on the weekend, get what they're looking for and get out and move on to other things they don't want to spend the full day shopping. So again, tenants who are adjusting to that new market are going to do well. And people that fail to adjust are, are probably not going to be around to some extent. So online is, is no question here to stay and still, it's still gaining market share at this point. The question is, what is the right mix of you know, online and brick and mortar? And that's the question everyone's trying to figure out at this point.
0: Wow. This has been so helpful, Randy. Is there anything else that you think is important for our listeners to know?
1: No, look, I think the main thing at this point is, look, it's a compressed cap rate environment with minimal supply. So you just need to be a little bit careful as to what you're buying at this stage in the cycle, which is, you know, stay for the higher quality, the major markets, the investment grade tenants. You know, that's where we are in the cycle. There'll be other stages of the cycle where cap rates, you know, spread out and maybe interest rates go up and, you know, then maybe you want to go to secondary markets and secondary tenants. But that's not the stage of the cycle that we're at at the moment.
0: And I am actually curious when people have a potentially a triple net property, what kind of services do you provide? Is it with finding tenants, negotiating leases, what, what do you actually provide?
1: So we're an investment sales company. So we help people with their acquisition and disposition primarily um, of the properties. Of course, there's ancillary services that we provide and some that we outsource from, you know, helping people with 1031 exchanges to the financing of the individual properties to estate planning or, or what have you in, in regards to triple net properties. But again, mainly a brokerage firm focused on acquisition disposition of these type of assets.
0: Awesome. How can our listeners get in touch with you, Randy?
1: Um, best way to find me is go to bouldergroup.com and hit the contact us page or just go to LinkedIn and, and send me a connection request. Um, happy to help anybody with questions that they have.
0: And as always, all of these links will be under show notes. Randy, thank you so much for sharing your super incredible, amazing insights with us. And I I would love to have you back here to share some more.
1: Stephanie, thanks for having me. Good luck with your show and uh, really appreciate being on today.
0: And I would love to thank one of our latest reviewers, Sean Evans Tampa. Amazing. I absolutely lucked out finding this podcast. It was exactly what I was looking for, to educate myself for diversification of my residential portfolio with commercial real estate investments. The guests are top tier and on point. Stephanie must be one of the most selfless and helpful person in the world. Well, you know, not that selfless, but (laughs) I'll take it. Love the way she is absolutely honest about all the details, good and bad, of her investments. Binged on all the episodes and will listen to all again several times. Definitely signing up for the group calls. You should definitely sign up for the group calls. They have been amazing. Everyone is getting so much accomplished every week. This is our goals calls, and um, I will put the link again under show notes. It's been really amazing, and I'm very grateful for everyone that is part of it. Thank you so much, Sean, and I will see you guys next time.